0: of the program is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned B.C. company helping local business since 1892. In case you missed hour one of the show, Linus Carlson signing with the Vancouver Canucks. We talk about the top prospects, what to expect of Linus Carlson, and what we can glean so far from the moves Patrick Alveen and Jim Rutherford have made to this point of the Vancouver Canucks and what that potentially means for the upcoming summer. Also, David Pinota joined us talking about Battle of Alberta and also some off-season question marks for the National Hockey League. So a name we talked about in the lead-up to the trade deadline. It was brought up on uh, Hockey Night in Canada by Friedman and Merrick John Marino. And obviously a uh, big connection there with uh, Jim Rutherford going back to Pittsburgh. And one that fits what the Canucks are looking for, something as a player in his mid-20s that fits more in line with some of the young core pieces of the Vancouver Canucks, Mm -hmm. is controllable at a decent number, depending on how he performs, Yeah, and is a right shot D, which is something Jim Rutherford has specifically identified as a need for the Vancouver Canucks as well. You know one thing
1: he does really well? defend yes very good <laughs> um he does and what does this team need somebody that defends well and not only does he just defend well he gets the puck out of his own zone efficiently too and he's really good at defending against a rush we'll talk to Harmon about that who has a lot of the numbers on those sort of things as well but stylistically there are a lot of things he does well that this team needs and especially the fact that he plays the right side doing that you can easily see a natural partnership with john marino alongside quinn hughes or mm-hmm. Oliver Ekman larson
0: For both. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the player you're looking for now, you know, nothing's as black and white as just like, Hey, go out and get the player. Right. Um, Pittsburgh is in an interesting spot. They might be willing to dance in a, in a trade conversation, but what exactly are they looking for in return? Would uh, JT Miller be of interest to them? Could you work a deal around those two players? Um, how would Pittsburgh feel about that? Giving up the more controllable player for the one that is on an expiring contract. Like there's mm-hmm. just, there's a lot of different things that would go into that.
1: And, um, I know the guys on the people show have talked about this before too. And I know Randeep made the point and it's a good point. I mean, Pittsburgh isn't going to trade Marino if they can't keep Letang. Yeah. Cause then all of a sudden you have a deficiency on your right side. Even if you don't love Marino, can you afford to get rid of him and then not have Latang either? I mean, that's two of your top four right-side that are gone.
0: I don't see Latang going
1: anywhere else. So if he stays, that's how Marino becomes available. But he would have to stay for that to happen.
0: It's, uh, yeah, there's there's dominoes that would have to fall. And, you know, people always yeah. ask us, um, you know, where are the right shot D that the Canucks can acquire? Like, who's that young guy? Yesterday in my mentions on Twitter, I'm sorry if I forgot the name, but... Uh, was asked, like, who's the Brent Seabrook type, you know, right shot D that that the Canucks can find to to pair with Quinn Hughes? And it's just like, uh, well, I don't know, Brent Seabrook? (laughs) 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 Ten years ago? (laughs) Ten years ago? You're going to go back and grab him? Um, There's just there's not a lot of those guys. And they are hard to identify because, as we've talked about, Zach, you're generally not drafting Mm -hmm. uh, a stay-at-home type defenseman high in the first round or anywhere in the first round necessarily. It's uh it's it's not a position that's easy to fill. There's not a lot of players that
1: that play that side and play that way. Well, that's why you saw the Ottawa Senators draft Jake Sanderson pretty high a couple of years ago, who yeah. was projected to be more of a defensive defenseman, but he skates really well and he has he's got good puck skills, but it's very hard to project those guys to begin with, and usually they don't go very high. Because if a guy doesn't have good puck skills, then what's the point of drafting a guy high who can who can defend who can't get the puck out of his own zone?
0: Uh, let's bring in our next guest uh, from the Athletic. It is Harmon Dial. Thanks for this, Harm. Um, looking at your piece uh, on John Marino, and it's it's fascinating. You know, we know this is a player that has been linked to the Canucks, an interesting player, a guy who's had a lot of success, and maybe not as much success as he had in his rookie year. But uh, when you went into this deep dive on John Marino, what did you find?
2: Yeah, it was really interesting because I think for starters, from Pittsburgh's perspective, I think they um, the the big difference, obviously, is Jim Rutherford was the one who initially acquired Marino, uh, was the one who signed, signed him to that big extension. And while Marino's been a good player in Pittsburgh, uh, I think uh, if you sort of um, – Poli industry, you get the sense that their management there isn't quite as high on Marino in his contract, and they're in a position where they need to shed, or they may need to shed some salary. So, uh, when I dove in and looked at Marino as a player, I see a second pair, number three, four type defenseman, someone who uh, is mobile, moves the puck well, isn't dynamic necessarily, but uh, really smart in terms of how he uh, reads the play on defensive zone retrievals. Um, has a subtle ability to uh, just shake off the first layer of four checking pressure, and you combine that with how well he defends a rush. Marino's uh, rush defense numbers, in terms of uh, controlled entries against and rush chances against, were the the best among Penguins defensemen. So he was a guy who moves the puck well, defends the blue line well. Um, it, there are a lo- There's a lot to like, and Considering he's a right shot guy, considering he's 25 years old, so he's right in his prime, and uh, considering the fact that he's already locked up uh, for another five years, uh, it's pretty rare that uh, a player to to see a player like Marino potentially available and on the market. And for that reason, it's uh, it's it is an attractive sort of opportunity, I think, for the Canucks to sort of think about now. I don't think it's as simple as just looking at the Canucks' right side uh, mm-hmm. issues and saying Marino's the guy because I think for starters, you'd have to, for me, I think, before you even go after Marino, you'd have to figure out a way to, I think, shed Tyler Myers' contract if you're going to go down that route because otherwise you'd end up with, you know, if your blue line has Marino, Myers, Hughes, and Ekman Larson, the Canucks would have over $25 million, almost a third of their entire salary cap, committed to uh, four defensemen, which I, I just don't, I don't think that that's, uh, optimal and, and, and we've heard how, uh, how crucial it is for this management group to carve out cap space. So I think figuring out a, a different home for Myers would have to be a prerequisite before they even really take a, a serious, uh, shot at, uh, Marino, especially because, uh, when you look at the potential fit, um, Yeah, I mean, a lot of people look at we want to acquire a right shot guy to play with Quinn Hughes, but um, if you're talking about Marino, his best asset is his puck moving ability. And considering the Canucks have zone exit issues when Quinn Hughes isn't on the ice, um, there, if if you do target a piece like Marino, there could be value in bringing him in. And obviously, Marino and Myers would kind of be in that similar second pair type role. So um, it's it's definitely interesting. And obviously, I think the big wild card in all of it would obviously be price as well, Mm. and trying to figure out what exactly
1: the Canucks would have to give up. Because I think, Harm, I think they can move Myers. I mean, yeah, you may not be able to move the entire 6 million, but I, and I've been saying this for a while, but I think you can move at least four to five of that potentially. And that would open it up. But I don't think they would do that unless they feel like they have a good chance of landing a Merino type. And it's interesting because... Because you mentioned, it's like, why would a guy like him even be available to begin with? People are texting, texting in and saying, you know, Pittsburgh guys have been on this radio station talking about how he's been disappointing and all that sort of stuff. But I also think it goes back to a point you made in your article. And it is in the eye of the beholder as well because he came up and they thought he's a puck-moving defenseman, good defensively. And if he becomes good offensively too and and you know puts up 40 points and he's good good as a two-way guy, then it's, he's going to be a bargain. But all of a sudden, he's not living up to that expectation. And they're looking at it and saying, we need more guys to provide offense from our back end. And all of a sudden, he doesn't look like a fit for that team. Whereas in Vancouver, all the things he does well, like you mentioned, is exactly what this team needs. So it's it's oftentimes these types of guys you have to target. A guy that's, you know, maybe fallen in the eyes of that team, that's no longer a real fit, but could be a really good fit on this team.
2: For sure. And it's similar to what happened with Brock Besser, right? Uh, Besser yeah. sort of had this electric rookie season, and everyone looked at him and thought, is this a potential franchise winger, 40-goal potential? And Brock Besser is still one hell of a player. But obviously, we can tell just based off of fan base and um, a lot of a lot of the reaction in the market. Like I think to myself, Brock Besser, because of how high he set the bar, um, it's everyone feels like there's there should be more to give from a player like Besser, and that's why uh, a lot of times in the market we end up, I think, underrating uh, a player like Besser, and I think that's the that's kind of like you alluded to uh, the situation for Marino, and it's also fascinating because when you look at Marino's skill set, right. When you're able to move the puck and get out, of, get it out of your own zone. When you defend the rush very well, what happens is you're able to drive strong defensive results because you're spending very, very little time defending in your own end. But the thing about Marino, and this is one of the things that I think the Canucks will have to think about as well, is despite the fact that he has a six foot one frame, he can get out muscled in front of the net, and so it can be easy to, I think, look at Marino and say. Well, he's not putting up the point totals that he was in his rookie season, right? So he's not necessarily this dynamic offensive defenseman. And yeah, he can move the puck well, and yeah, he defends the rush well, but he's not exactly the sort of heavy player that's going to break up the cycle. He's not your prototypical defensive defenseman either. And so I think it could be easy for people in Pittsburgh to look at Marino and say, what exactly is his identity? And he's a good defenseman, but is he worth the amount of money uh, four four point four million. And for me, I think when you take a take a step back, um, and you do consider his skill set, as two intelligence, I personally think, um, that he is a good player. But I also, in doing this deep dive, um, you know, polled some some people around the league, right? NHL executives, and um, one thing to consider is is that um, is that aspect of if you have a blue line with Hughes, Oel, and Marino. All of them are good players. None of them are particularly strong, though, in terms of in-zone defense <clears throat> with respect to breaking up the cycle, with respect to um, winning battles in front of the net, being hard to play against. And so you'd have to think about, can you win the playoffs with three of your four top four defensemen not necessarily fitting that bill? Um, that's at least something you'd have to consider, um, especially because in all, in all three of those players' cases, with Hughes, Oel, and Marino, uh, you'd be committed to those guys. From each, each of those guys has five years left on their contract. So it's not just about, um, are, are these good defensively? and can you win with them in the regular season? You'd have to kind of think a step ahead and, because that would be a big long-term commitment. But there's no doubt in my mind, I really like Marino as a player. For me, it just sort of comes down to, can you move Myers's contract? And then, of course, thereafter, uh, what would the potential cost be?
0: I know you recently uh, did a piece too with with Michael Russo on you know what the framework of a Kevin Fiala deal would look like and looking some at some past comparables on on that. Now you know Fiala is an eighty five point player uh, is right at the peak of his value, whereas uh, Marino is is not as we've kind of talked about. But you know, is is there was um, there something you can relate to going through that process with Fiala? that would tell us what Marino's value could potentially be on the trade market?
2: I don't necessarily know if there are uh, if, if there are sort of lines to connect between um, those two players. I think in looking at Marino, it'll be interesting to see. Obviously, Pittsburgh just recently extended Brian Rust. Um, now, one of the biggest talking points in Pittsburgh going into the playoffs was this idea that they had this, top line with Crosby, Rustin, Gensel. I was one of the best in the NHL, but they had an issue with finding wing help for Malkin and, and getting enough production out of their second and third lines. And so that's obviously why they went out and uh, at the deadline acquired Ricard Raquel. So for me, it's going to be interesting. Is Pittsburgh still in the market for uh, a top six winger? Because if that's the case, um, then obviously the Canucks have, um, you know, Connor Garland or Brock Besser's potential. Uh, pieces that could be attractive um, now there is obviously another scenario where I think one of the reasons that they are considering shipping Marino out is because um, they feel the well let me walk that back there are a number of contracts that I think it's not that they've Pittsburgh's necessarily identified Marino as it that guy that needs to go I think there are a number of contracts on the back end like Dumoulin and even Marcus Pedersen where they look at and go do one of these contracts could we could we get significant assets back and would it be worth it to clear up cap space? And if that's the case, then and and they don't necessarily feel the need to uh, really bolster their top six, then it's a case where if they're not wanting to take salary back, then they could be looking at uh, future assets. And in that case, that's where it may be a little bit trickier because the Canucks don't have a deep uh, prospect pipeline. Um, The Canucks are in a situation where they're looking for um, future assets and draft picks and young prospects, as opposed to mm-hmm. um, sending more out the door. Uh, now, of course, there are creative ways to get around that, right? You could look at a player like the Miller or Best or Garland, deal them in a separate trade, and use those future assets uh, to acquire uh, to acquire and, and try and pursue a piece like Marino. But that's where I'm really going to be interested to see um, if Latang resigns, because I think that's a huge yeah. part of it too, right? Because if Latang, if Latang. Leaves there's I, there's no way they're going to let both of their top four right-handed defensemen go, mm-hmm. uh, but if Latang does stick around, if he signs an extension, um, and he and and therefore Marino does become available, um, what sort of assets are Pittsburgh going to be looking at? Are they going to be looking at top six uh, additional top six help, or are they more looking at shedding Marino as a way to carve out cap space? And would they be then looking for future assets?
1: Well, and I think you kind of nailed that there uh harm because the Canucks challenge is making hockey deals or making 3d deals where you're moving one asset getting you know futures back in return then you flip those futures for the player you're looking to acquire and I don't think they're against doing that they already showed that in the Dermot trade you know where you know they acquired a third round pick for Hammonick then you know had an extra pick and were able to go out and make a deal to, to acquire Dermot so as much as the hockey deals are there if they can line up trades, and I think this is going to be the biggest challenge, if they're able to line up trades they think they can execute, then maybe they're willing to move somebody for futures, then flip those futures or part of that future for somebody else that can help you more near term. So I think that's kind of one of the things I'm looking at here. Can they sequence enough things to pull that off? Because it's, it's easy to say, go and get futures, but unless you know what you're acquiring, sometimes it's hard to just have that uh, and have that asset, but then have the uncertainty about what you're doing with it. Hundred percent, and
2: it's it's especially tricky because the Canucks are in a spot where they've got so many different options they could go down um, in terms of the number of of high profile players that they could use as assets, um, especially with a lot of these contract uh, decisions. And um, even when you talk about, uh, let's say, a player like uh, Connor Garland, right? Um, you could just as easily, because of the term left on this deal, you could just as easily keep him, and he could be a useful piece. So. Uh, it's not as if the Canucks necessarily have to, in the off season, ha- have this fire sale where they're sending uh, a ton of uh, a, plur- a ton of players out, and, and that's why I think this um, situ- situation that the Canucks are uh, are in heading into the offseason is so is going to be so fascinating to monitor because they're kind of trying to balance two goals at once. Where on the one hand, yeah, they need to, you know, their prospect pipeline doesn't have enough, and um, they haven't, uh, they haven't drafted enough in the first two rounds, the last couple of uh, draft classes, so they could use more picks as well. Uh, but at the same time, they're also, th- th- this can't just be an off season where you, um, just sell and, and, and sell everything and all bank, all these futures and you're like, you're not going to, this isn't a full blown rebuild, right? It's, it's kind of the point I'm trying to make. Yes, you can sell. Um, yes it 'd be good to acquire a lot of future assets but you 're also you also want to be in a position to turn things around uh, sooner rather than later and so that 's where it 's going to be really interesting and I wonder it, how much of their path and how aggressive they are in selling is going to be determined based off of like i th- i look at j t Miller as was one of the big dominoes in all this right because He's such a big part of this Canucks team. Um, Ninety-nine points—that's that's t- very tough to replace in the short term. Um, and if you're if you're the Canucks and you think to yourself that you can't find a way to extend him, then obviously you're going to have to move him. And because he's he's that tough to replace at the top of your uh, at the top of your lineup, um, it, I would wonder if that would affect kind of the blueprint of how. Um, how they view the timeline of just how quickly that they want to try and uh, turn this team back into a playoff team and then eventually uh, uh, a contender. I think the blueprint of um, how exactly you want to plan a lot of moves starts with what you're going to do with JT Miller.
0: Harm, we appreciate the time as always. Thank you. Thanks, guys. There is Harmondale uh, of the Athletic, a great piece up on uh, John Marino and a deep dive on the player and what uh, what he looks like as a potential target for the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, speaking of targets, that you know it's the offseason. you start like looking through names that could be interesting, right? Yes, and especially when it comes to the uh, affordable type of player that could be available one name I'm interested in miles wood hmm yep he is uh, a restricted free agent for the New Jersey Devils will be 27 in September but only played three years three games this year with yep. a pretty 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 bad hip injury so yes red flag right but is that a player that doesn't get qualified and is all of a sudden available as a free agent? Mm. He'd probably have his pick of a few teams that might want to take a chance on him, but you know, that's a, a middle six type of player that kind of fits exactly what Jim Rutherford has talked about getting more sandpaper, uh, had the speed maybe before the injury, see if he can get it back. But yeah, you know, that's, to me, that's a really interesting player that I came across today,
1: and that's the big question: if he's able to find get his speed back, then he's that type of versatile middle six guy that yeah. makes sense. But also the type of guy that a lot of contenders would probably look to, mm-hmm. you know, add as a flyer. And that's why maybe you got to pay him a little bit and take a you know flyer on him in that sense. But you're right; I find the RFA list of players who are not going to get qualified to be very intriguing potentially. Because once you start going through the exercise of group six free agents, even, and UFAs and all that sort of stuff, it ain't great. There's a few guys you can target, but there isn't a lot there. But once you start looking at the RFAs, you're like, okay, the guys who may not be qualified, those are the ones that could be very, very interesting. Uh,
0: That's why July is going to be really fascinating. It always is. Uh, Guys who don't get qualified, and we've seen with the flat cap... That that list is longer than it used to be. Yeah, right. And some really interesting names end up not getting qualified.
1: Yeah, and you know uh, we can discuss some of these things a bit more. But we've seen in in the past the the contract you have a player coming out of his ELC is so important. Yeah, because if you miss, then that player is no longer going to be part of your control because he becomes too expensive of what he provides.
0: It's uh, similar to what the Canucks conundrum is with with Brock Besser right now, and obviously wishing uh, all the best to the Besser family. Uh, right now, Dan Riccio, Satyar Shah. It is Canucks Central coming back. We'll get in on the Colorado series, and we do have a goal in the Carolina game. Let's get to the playoff goal horn. The Rangers had made it two-one, but the goal was called back for offside, and it looks like Toivo Teravainen has now made it. 2-1 midway through the second period for the Carolina Hurricanes. The Goal Horn is brought to you by Surrey Cedar. For quality Cedar products, visit them online at surreycedar.com. Diving into the Colorado-St. Louis series next on Sportsnet 650. Canuck Central is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned B.C. company helping local business since 1892. It's Dan Riccio, R. Shaw, An incredible comeback by the St. Louis Blues last night extends their series with the Colorado Avalanche. And now joining us, play-by-play voice for the Avalanche, Connor McGehee. Thanks for this, Connor. It was uh, seemed like it was done after the McKinnon goal to put uh, the Abs up 4-3, but it was... Was not to be. How uh, how was Colorado feeling after that?
3: I think they're feeling better than I am, fellas. My heart can't take this. It really can't. <laughs> this is. <laughs> yeah, I can't do too many more of these. But I mean, it was that. It was a roller coaster of emotion, right? In mm-hmm. that, uh, in that third period, because the avalanche of a two goal lead, and then all of a sudden, um, it's tied, and then Nathan McKinnon with a goal for the ages, um, and. and for all intents and purposes, that should be the series winner, and it just wasn't. So uh, but I, I think that the avalanche, and I've said this numerous times, they have learned the lessons of the last really three postseasons. If you go back to the second round versus San Jose in two thousand and nineteen, they're compiling all these lessons into what makes them the team they are today, and I would file that under under one of those. And Nathan McKinnon, wise enough to say hey, you know, the St. Louis Blues, it, that, that's not a five-game series team over there. It's just not. And so for them to, to know that and see bigger picture and, and see what they could have done better, uh, obviously, in that contest, which, which is a good amount, and then shift focus to tomorrow night, I think says a lot about this group today compared to where they may have been a year ago.
1: Well, and, you know, one of the things this team has done is try to address his goaltending. And, I mean, Darcy Kemper has been really good all season. He's had really good moments in the postseason. Is there any concern about his form recently here against the Blues now?
3: Yeah, I I don't think there's any concern about the form. I mean, up until last night, we weren't talking about Mm goaltending, which I think is a good thing, right? When you're not talking about goaltending in a series, I always think that that is filed under positive. So he would probably tell you he didn't have the best night last night. Um, in the third period and definitely in the overtime. But what I've seen from Darcy Kemper playing against him in the postseason, seeing him and what he's done this year, I mean, he's got records this regular season that Patrick Waugh never had in an avalanche uniform, two instances uh, of back-to-back shutouts. Um, and, And so when he can turn it on, he can. I mean, there's the game in Edmonton a couple months ago where he had a career high in saves stopped all 11 shots in the overtime and then all three shootout attempts to get the win. So we, we've seen him go there, and I, I, I think now he realizes that there may be a time where he's needed. So I, I, I don't really have any concern whatsoever about about avalanche net mining at the moment.
0: What's what's the key for Colorado here? Um, do, do they need to change anything, or is, is playing their game ultimately what gets this done?
3: I, I think that... Them on the front foot is the best iteration of the Colorado Avalanche, and they weren't really in the second half of that hockey game last night on the front foot. Um, uh-huh. For them, when they take the pedal off, they're not as good of a hockey team, and that's a simple truth. And we, if you give St. Louis any opportunity, which we've seen, they'll, they'll score on it. They could. I mean, the first period in Game Four is the perfect example. They had four shots; one of them went in on a giveaway from Devon Taves in the corner. So, um, I, I think that for them. They know now that, okay, no matter what, whether you're trying to catch up to a lead or you have a lead, it's, it's acceleration and, and keep the puck. If you give the other team the puck in any certain amount of time, they're going to make you pay, and now they know that for sure. So I don't think any massive changes. I'm still convinced that Colorado, when they play the way that they're supposed to, the best team in the National Hockey League.
1: Well, and, I mean, they have so much depth and so much speed on that team. And, you know, one of the guys that uh, I was curious to kind of get your get your thoughts on was Bowen Byram on the back end. The other night he had oh, a couple yeah. of assists, and, and he's had a tough year. We in Vancouver, of course, think very highly of him, having played for the Giants, and we, we watched his career unfold. But, you know, a lot of worry and concern about him with all the head injuries and everything. But is it fair to say that he's maybe finding his game at the most important time of the year?
3: Without a doubt. I think he's been fantastic. Um Uh, last night he he gets a pair of assists he's a plus nine at one point and uh, that's second in the entire Stanley Cup playoffs to Connor McDavid who's a ridiculous plus 17 um so that says a ton him and Eric Johnson have been absolutely wonderful together and you know he's a fourth overall pick as you know Cale McCarr a fourth overall pick and I think offensively people sometimes expect him to Be like Kale McCarr because of that, and it's it's not really fair. I think that Bowen Byram is all around as solid as defenseman as you can ask for. Great offensive instincts, amazing defensive instincts, and he's he's about as complete as a D man as you can get. And Eric Johnson said to us the other day, he said, "Look, Bo Byram, if he's on any other team besides this one, could easily be a top D pair without a doubt." and especially considering what he has gone through in the past 18 uh, to even 20 months. It, it's remarkable that he's been able to come back after taking a leave of absence in the middle of the season this year and really step into a role where now he's, you know, he's up there on the second power play with Sam Girard out and coach Bednar has expected more out of him and he's been able to deliver. I just think that's about as impressive of a thing as you, as you can ask for. And, He's definitely um, one of the uh, one of the crown jewels of this Avalanche roster.
0: Uh, last one for you, uh, Connor. Before we let you go, uh, what's what's Nazem Kadri meant to this team overall this season?
3: You know, it's something because I mean, obviously, past Kadri is kind of been a, a, a divisive character almost in the National Hockey League. But I think this year, in particular, after what happened in the postseason last year with. They hit on Justin Falk, the eight-game suspension. Uh, he just, and I'm sure you guys read that Player Tribune article where he felt that he let his team down, and he never wanted to do that ever again. And this year, Nazem Kadri, I think, took it upon himself um, to be better, to be a complete hockey player, and he was. I mean, he had more assists this year than he had career iron points uh, in his career, and Definitely a 200-foot hockey player. Jared Bednar went out of his way to say that on numerous occasions, that defensively he set himself up for a ton of offensive opportunities. And then really in the past five or six days or so, we've seen what kind of a teammate he's been because everybody rallied behind him in in, in a big way Um, here in St. Louis after what transpired. And they didn't leave him out on an island. It wasn't even a thought. Um, he brought them even closer together as a group. And I, I love to see people grow, fellas. I think we all do, and, and change and be better versions of ourselves. And that's why I think we're all proud of Nazim Kadri for for how far he's come and what he's been able to do. And I think that that um, there's no doubt about it that he's a, a major cog in the wheel that's the Colorado Avalanche.
0: Hey, Connery, I uh, really appreciate the time. The, the call on that McKinnon goal is uh, legendary. Thanks for this tonight.
3: Yeah, puberty is rough, fellas. When you get there, <laughs> you'll uh, you'll know.
0: Uh, appreciate it, Connor. Thanks.
3: Thanks, uh, guys. See you.
0: There is uh, Connor McGahey, play-by-play voice uh, for the Colorado Avalanche, and a great call on that uh, McKinnon goal last night. It was, uh, as did uh, harner Singh. What a great call on the uh, Hockey Night in Canada broadcast as well. It's, um, you know, that goal, man. It's incredible, like how quickly he builds up speed. Sat.
1: Oh. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, the only guy that does it better is in Edmonton.
0: Yeah, you know, and it. it if you ever had a chance to play with guys that play at that level, um. I've only done it in like pro am tournaments, so like don't get me wrong. Okay,
1: <laughs> you know me. Back in my day, I was I was dance guys.
0: But it, like the the first thing that always sticks out is um you know the first two strides and how quickly they get up to yeah. full speed, and then you know you watch McKinnon on TV and it takes you back. So imagine you being at ice level watching watching him do that um and and trying to defend it, but. You know, when you are in one of those games, you've got to figure out a way to slow him down, impede his progress. So he is mm-hmm. unable to get up to 100 miles an hour. And once Jordan Cairou gives him the old, like, stick whiff. Oof, uh, you that know, was that was
1: poor. Poor defending. Nick, you can't Let- doing that. Nick
0: Letty's got no chance.
1: I mean, Nick Letty, that's where you want Nick Letty. One-on-one defending. Because yeah. that's not where he's really good at. And, you know, and, and McKinnon stole his lunch. But Cairou, who is actually a good skater, too. Yeah. You got to get in McKinnon's way a bit more than doing whatever you did on that play, yeah. and those goals happen because of a great individual effort, but also only happen when because a couple of guys make mistakes. I mean, even J.T. Miller's ones, you kind of see a team is caught off guard or they're lackadaisical. You're not supposed to dance an entire team, no matter yeah. who you are. Usually, if a team's aware, and yeah. You know, they're not getting caught. Yeah. They'll well, defend that a lot better.
0: They're incredible goals, and you don't want to diminish them. No, most. of
1: course not. But yeah,
0: like watch the Miller goal against Ottawa and just focus on the Ottawa
1: players <laughs> rather than Miller. Yeah. You're like, all right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, what's happening here?
1: Well, I mean, the most famous one recently for the Canucks was the Bo Horvat one in the postseason. Right. And it was like two forwards he dangled. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, well, well, it was Vince Dunn. Vince Dunn. Dunn was kind and, of a and, forward. Well, Kind of a forward. Yeah. Well, and, and Bozak, I think it yes. was, right? And, Two guys. I mean, those are the guys who won one on one. Guys who are good in one on one spots. I think it was Jaden Schwartz. Sorry, yeah, Jaden Schwartz. You're right. Yeah, and he just danced two guys. Yeah,
0: it was. Uh, it was. Man, that was. A, it was a playoff goal that didn't get as much hype as
1: McKinnon's, but uh, well, didn't go quite as long. It didn't go quite as far.
0: Uh, Horvath's got that one move, man, and he he pulls it yeah. off a number of times a year. But uh, the toe drag uh, onto uh, onto his off hand so that he can bull rush over to
1: the net I mean even like and I'm like crapping on all the Canucks highlights in the postseason but like even the Tyler <laughs> Mott goal mean, the one on Petrangelo where he dances Petrangelo he didn't have a stick yeah that's why <laughs> which is great but you know it's like what a goal it's like yeah but we're Petrangelo about to get cancelled
0: we're Canuck Central <laughs> and we're just like
1: poo pooing all the great <laughs> playoff goals
0: <laughs> hey you remember all those great playoff goals you saw two years ago yeah they were they weren't really that great oh
1: yeah <laughs> Uh, My no, favorite it was- <laughs> part, like
0: the Horvath goal, where Hughes is like on his stomach and he and he sends the puck like 150 oh, feet. That the, was pretty elite.
1: I think it was Bozak who hit him, and then he kind of yeah. smiled at him afterwards, which, which was really funny. He's like, "How about that pass?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it was decent. <laughs>
0: it was decent. Uh, pretty funny. Colorado St. Louis. We'll have uh, game six tomorrow here on uh, on Sportsnet 650. Just to give you a little peek behind the curtain. Small fist pump. Uh, when early we, Friday, when we get the early Friday show, we're on three to five tomorrow. Uh, as we'll bring you to St. Louis for that game. I I gotta say, Sat, like I do wonder about Colorado, mm. the killer instinct of it all. Like, yeah, okay, you can't really defend well in your own end. You still shouldn't give up a three nothing lead.
1: No, you shouldn't. I mean, and you know. Uh, Connor kind of mentions that he thinks the team's going to come out and, you know, they've learned from their lessons and all that sort of stuff. And I mean, hey, listen, they blitzed through the first round. Yeah. So that was no issue. And they were up 3-1. This is the one kind of stub your toe. And I I think they, you know, I thought, like we mentioned ad nauseum now, the Blues lost their head in game four and cost themselves. That could have been an opportunity. But I'd say last night was the first time this postseason Colorado showed real weakness. Yeah.
0: That's fair you know, the, defending in their own end, letting St. Louis back into the game. 3-0 lead on home ice. Uh, clinching game. McKinnon scoring a hat trick, basically putting the team on his shoulders and saying, "We are winning tonight." And then they still blew it. Well,
1: it's kind of like the it was kind of the inverse of the Mike Smith goal that went in. Usually yeah. when a goal like that goes in, you don't win a hockey game when you blow a 3-0 lead. And whereas the flip side is usually when your best player gets a hat trick and scores a goal like that, you don't lose a hockey game. Yeah. And yet they ended up losing that game.
0: Now, uh, not that Sam Girard is great at defending in his own end, but I, I part of me is uh, feeling that that has been a sneaky, tough loss for the Avalanche because Eric Johnson has not looked Whoa. good in this
1: series. Well, I mean, a lot of things are true at the same time, like I've been saying. <laughs> so obviously, yes, Girard is not great at defending in his own zone. They need to have guys who are better at defending in their own zone. But one thing they do well is get out of their own zone and don't yeah. spend a lot of time in their own zone. So if you have Gerard back in the lineup, you play Johnson a bit less, which mm-hmm. you know takes away some of the issues and you spend less time in your own zone. So yes, he doesn't help your defending issue, but because he spends less time in his own zone, it still helps you solve your problem. So that's why we you know when I talk about the, about Colorado, they're at their best when when they have all their guys available to lean into what they are. Yeah, because they're not going to win by being a good defensive team. They don't have those guys, so they have to just outpower and out rush and out chance teams and just lean on them consistently. That's the that's the way for them to win. Because if they're trying to play, you know, half court type of game, that doesn't play into their strengths. I really
0: do want to see, uh, like at first, I, I, I like I want to see Colorado
1: Edmonton. Yeah, you know, just for McKinnon and McDavid head to head,
0: and Drysaitel. Yeah, and, and Macar.
1: I get it. No, I, I mean and <laughs> I thought I saw um, Bruff made the point, or he asked a question on Twitter the other night. Said if Edmonton and Colorado meet, how many of the top ten players in the NHL are in that series? And he kind of said four or three. Yeah, I mean it's Drysaddle, McDavid, McCarr, and McKinnon. You'd say yeah. those four are top ten guys, right? Yeah. So forty percent of
0: th- not top ten in the.
1: No, I mean, he's if close. you want to make the argument, Peranton is really good, though. Yeah, he's close. He's he's close. a top ten
0: winger in the league, but yes. not overall player.
1: No, probably, no, probably not an overall player. But man, is he? A, he's a monster. People don't realize how big he is. He's like six four two twenty. Huge. Yeah. <laughs> he's massive.
0: Speed. He's got. He's got. He's got everything. Yeah.
1: And. Well, yeah, it, but still, forty percent of the top ten players in the league in one series. Yeah. That's fun.
0: I'm curious to see how that would
1: that series would shake out as well. Because Probably
0: a five-one win for Colorado. <laughs> just a bunch of five-one wins for for Colorado. Uh,
1: no, I mean, uh, sorry, I, I meant like in five. Yeah. Be over four-one, be over in five. I mean, uh, I I want to see it for the excitement, yeah. and see what Connor can do and or well, whatever. But it, it, the matchup's not great for Colorado. I mean, for Edmonton, I don't Styles, see yeah. stylistically, not, unless Connor just goes absolutely ham, even yeah. more than what he's done. It's kind of tough. Just goes nuclear. Although, I mean, I guess maybe he does. (laughs) So I don't want to count him out too much. But I don't like Colorado's chances against, say, Tampa.
0: Well, the history of the playoffs tells us that. That at some point, you're going to go
1: through a bit of a cold streak. Yes. You hope that it happens early and you get past it early. Kind of like Tampa did against Toronto. (laughs) And I kind of wonder that about
0: Edmonton right now. McDavid and Dreisaitl have combined for 40 Seven points in eleven games. Mm-hmm. That is insane. Yep. Forty-seven points between them in eleven games. Evander Kane has more goals than games played so far in this postseason. Yep. This is their scoring is so concentrated to a handful of players. And yes, they didn't need that to win necessarily. I know Kane still had the two goals. And McDavid and Dreisaitl still combined for five points, all assists. But their scoring has been so concentrated that the history of the Stanley Cup playoffs tells me eventually they're going to go through a cold streak, and I don't see any way possible that Edmonton can overcome that. Like, if those guys go quiet for two, three games, like, your
1: series is done. They can't. However, is it a foregone— I mean, is there not a decent possibility that those guys don't go cold? I mean, these are guys, I mean, look at the seasons they've put up. Is it is it that much to say that yeah.
0: they can't be red hot for 25 games? Look, right now they're they're in the driver's seat. They're closing it out against Calgary. Whether it's tonight or yeah. it's, it's on the weekend, they're closing it out.
1: I mean, the way I look at it is that's the best combo in the league when they're on. Yeah. So the best combo in the league, they've shown in the past, they can go 20, 30 games or red hot. Mm-hmm. That's all we need in the playoffs. It's 20-odd some games.
0: Yeah. You know, think about so, the first thirty games of Edmonton' season this year.
1: We were talking about Connor might get two hundred points. Remember yeah. that discussion? People were like, can he get one hundred and fifty? Can their he get power 200? play was fifty percent for like the first two months of the season. It was insane. So that's a. T- I mean, if it wasn't if it wasn't that combo, I'd say yes. I mean, i'd I'd probably bet against them at some point. But that combo, I'm not betting against their production mm-hmm. now. I don't like their chances as a team against Colorado if they meet. Although if those guys go ham, it can be a lot more fun. But man for Colorado. <laughs> Honestly, I think Tampa would wax them. Yeah. I think Tampa wouldn't have too much of a hard time. Yeah, I mean, you know, cuz they've shown bit was, of a spicy take. Is like, it, though, I mean, look, look I mean, what did they do to Toronto and Florida?
0: Yeah. I know like they they play every which way possible and uh, Marcus and Gibson's came in earlier in the show and was like, "You want to talk about uh, being <laughs> being snubbed for award noms? How about John Cooper?" Like, yeah, when when you no coach doubt. the most talented team in the league, you generally don't get uh, Jack Adams love. It's a stupid part of how that NHL voting goes, but it's generally how it's gone.
1: No, and it's kind of funny because it was Lane Vigneault mentioned. I mean, look at the history of guys who won the Jack Adams. You yeah. see a good goaltender. <laughs> or is it torch, somebody? I'm, if I yeah. forget which coach it was it mentioned that. That's what it is. I mean, guys usually win the Vesna. I mean, win the Jack Adams. Usually have a goalie that had an incredible year. And then the coach gets credit for it. The goalies do too. I mean, they'll so, win Vesnas and all that sort of stuff. But usually the greatest benefactor of a, of a monumental season by a starting goaltender is the head coach if you make the playoffs. So you're saying Daryl Sutter and
0: Gerard Gallant are overrated?
1: No, I don't think they're overrated. But I think the award, how it's given out, if you look at the... Co- co- uh, the uh, correlations? Yes. It was hard. I had a hard time getting that word out. <laughs> if you look at the correlations, Jack Adams' winners correlate oftentimes with really, really good seasons by a goalie. Um, Markstrom. Man. He out- ain't right. Yeah. Like, he's not right. And, and the greater question here is, and, you know, there was some criticism for New York for how for how little to play Shesterkin for him being to be in the heart race and all that sort of stuff. And he has struggled a bit in the first round, but since then he's found his game. Mm-hmm. He's a guy, Markstrom, that we know for a fact. If he plays too many games, he breaks down. Yeah. In Vancouver, the the, the discussion was, do you have a capable backup? Because you got to rest him at least 25 games or 20-some games. He's not going to be able to be healthy if he doesn't do that, all that sort of stuff. Calgary's leaned on him hard these two years they've had him. Yep. I he remember, started like eighty percent of their games, or something. He played
0: sixty three this year. I, I don't think it's any coincidence that Jay Woodcroft brought that up <laughs> the other day when he was mentioning Mike Smith. And you know, he's in mid season form because he only played uh, thirty eight games during the season. So now he's just like at peak, yeah, peak performance. Um, whereas you know, it's not like he played sixty three, just so happens to be the number that Jacob Markstrom played this season. It's too much, man, and we talked about this a lot. Like, most goalies, you don't want them playing more than 60 games in a regular season because they will break down in the playoffs. You saw it with UC Soros. You're seeing it with Markstrom. It's just not a it's not a comfortable spot for goalies to be in. I think that was, you know, partially some of what Luongo had to go through as well when he was played so much. Carey Price, best playoff performance came when Montreal
1: didn't play him 70 games in a year, right? Yeah. So
0: it's... Uh, Oh, only Martin Brodeur. He was a unicorn.
1: Yeah, and even even that, the game's so different. And Martin Brodeur didn't get a ton of rubber yeah. every game. I Eighteen mean,
0: saves a night, like, which not is bad.
1: which isn't easy either, because you have to you know be mentally sharp for all that you know non-action or inaction. And even the shots they faced, a lot of it was from the outside. The Devils, believe it or not, in their heyday, didn't give up too many odd man chances. <laughs> You're not really going east west trying to make you know incredible saves numerous times a game. He was great when counted on, mm-hmm. cause, when called upon, because he was spectacular. But Uh, you know it was a different game different time uh this text saying
0: tampa bay will wax colorado is a scalding take sat i like it bringing the heat yeah sat put that one in the air fryer cooked it up oh waxed they could wax colorado or they could wax
1: i think so i think so hey let's i don't know man i mean they finish off the blues first we'll see what conference final before you get to a cup final see if the blues see if they both make if it there. They both make it there but yeah all right I, I'd probably call Tampa and five if those two teams meet Ooh. maybe six
0: we'll see we'll see how healthy they are when they get there uh, that that might play a factor as well all right Uh coming up uh, we'll get into uh, the situation with the Canadian soccer team as they announced the cancellation of the Iran friendly That's coming up next and more on Canuck Central Sports at 650.